0: Well, if you have a Bible, then please do open it to James chapter 4. And we're going to read the first 10 verses tonight. So James 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners and purify your hearts. You double-minded, grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Thanks, Phil.
1: Uh, Now listen, just for those who haven't been with us uh, for the last couple of weeks, the writer of this book, James, has spent a large chunk of his book writing about the damage that the tongue can do. And in the verses previous to verses 6 to 10, our passage this evening, he's been helping his readers see the cause of the quarreling in their church. He says, their hearts towards one another were self-centered. Their hearts towards God were selfish, and they were living as friends of the world, which meant they were living as enemies of God. And yet in all the selfishness, James leaves his readers with hope. And that hope lies in God's nature. You see, God loves his people passionately. That's what it says in James chapter 4, verse 5. It says this, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? So James says, God is jealous over his children like a husband is jealous for the affections of his wife. And that's how God has always felt towards his people and still feels towards his church today. God is jealous over us. So this evening we're going to to see how James' logic follows on from this. That if this is how God feels towards us, his church, if he loves us passionately, then it means he will work to sanctify us. That word sanctify means he will make us more like Jesus and help us out of our selfishness. So our passage this evening helps us see how God both works in us to be more like Jesus, and it shows how, we, how God invites us into that work. And we need to hear this this evening because for many Christians today, we feel powerless to change our lives. We, we hear the Bible calling us to holiness, but we struggle to act on it. And our natural selfishness seems to win more often than not. And we get caught in a, in a kind of a hamster wheel of wanting to please God, struggling to act on that desire, falling back into selfishness, falling out with others, and then in remorse, wanting to please God again. And so the cycle repeats. So this passage this evening teaches us the cure for selfishness that will have a real impact on our lives. And James encourages us with this. It is possible. It is possible to fight our selfishness. It is possible to live Christ-centered lives. And the invitation in this passage, verses 6 to 10, is to take God's hand and walk with him in it, whatever it might cost and wherever it might lead. So I've just got two points this evening. And the first is this, the cure for selfishness it's simply this we need to receive God's grace. Now, now, James's first stop for a cure for selfishness is God's given grace. Look at verse six of me. But he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. When we read that verse, we have to remember the context. We have to imagine God looking at his church and seeing the quarrels and fights, looking at the mess that their tongues are making, looking at the hearts that are harboring bitterness, looking at lives that are dominated by worldliness, um, and, and, and James reminds them of the truth. God is seeing this, and he's jealous. He sees all these negative characteristics Affecting relationships both with people in the church and with God. So, in response, we have to imagine God standing out, standing up at his throne, and rolling up his sleeves in single minded determination to act. And how does he do that? Well, he doesn't condemn. Isn't that interesting? He gives us more grace. That's his promise. The Greek word is literally extraordinary grace. It's an outpouring of God's work by the Holy Spirit to make his children more like Jesus. It's a sanctifying grace for those who are already his. And James wants us to know that God gives it and gives it ad infinitum. And here's the crux. God gives this extraordinary grace to those who need it. That's why he quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34. It's a quote that comes from a whole chapter in Proverbs, giving advice to walk humbly with God. So the question arises, who of us will be given this extraordinary grace? James says, it's not given to those who think they don't need us, the proud. James says to his readers, you're not going to receive this grace if you don't humbly ask for it. You're not going to receive this grace if you continue to try to deal with your heart and your speech without God's help. Because that way will only end in Phariseeism. You will become proud of your holiness. And that's not who this grace is for. On the other hand, if we want God's grace, we have to acknowledge how selfish we've been. in the ways that we've spoken about other people, how we've weaponized our language. We have to acknowledge how we've endlessly nagged God about things we think we ought to have, how we've weaponized our prayer. We have to acknowledge our dissatisfaction, our, our discontent with God and his gifts, And acknowledge our worldliness. And when we get to that point, when we're willing to confess our hearts and their harbored bitternesses and our tongues that are impossible to control, well, that's the point when we start crying out to God for his grace. And that's when God will give generously. And the question is, how do we go about practically receiving it? Well, that brings us to our second point. It's this, the cure for selfishness is this, receiving God's grace. The cure for selfishness is how to receive God's grace. So so the mystery of this extraordinary grace is that although it's not earned, we're still required to take responsibility to receive it. In other words, God invites us into his work of sanctifying us both by giving his grace and calling us into obedience. And that's a tension that we have to hold in mind for the whole of this point because we're going to look at a lot of things that James calls us to do and we do have to do those things. We do have to work out our salvation, but hold that together with the fact that God gives us grace. We need to do these things and God gives us the grace as well. That's why James doesn't say, on the one hand, let go and let God. Just, just you know, trust God. He'll give you the grace. You don't have to do anything about resisting temptation or sin. Just let go and let God. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says God's going to give you the grace. But he also says, on the other hand, I'm inviting you into this. So he doesn't say, try harder, you lazy numpties. says God gives us grace and he follows that up with a bunch of commands that help his readers to practically receive that grace. So look at verse 7 to 10. Submit yourself, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. It's a command that says uh, really acknowledge God as the highest authority. It's kind of the fundamentals of everything that's coming, coming in the next few verses. And it means stop submitting to other things first that we consider important in our lives. And there are shed loads of things in in our lives that compete for God's authority. In other words, there are shed loads of things that we feel are just really important. The approval of friends, family, likes on Instagram. It could be our jobs, you know. It could be our self-esteem. As we heard this morning, it could be affirmation of those around us, living our lives before people. But James says, no, 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 submit yourself to God. Relinquish, let go of your right to rule your own life. Let go of your desire to see other things dictate how you live your life. And it's so, so hard. We heard it this morning. It's so hard to do that. Why? Because there's a massive clamor for, 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 a massive clamor from, from outside um, influences like, like the media, like uh, social media, like our friends, like our schools, like our culture, that want to say. This is how it's going to be. And we really want to submit ourselves to those things because by those things we receive self-esteem. And God says, no, self-esteem comes from me. Submit to God. And to do that is to invest our all in putting him first, to putting what he considers important first. Living our lives before an audience One. The next two commands come as a negative and a positive. They're kind of the flip sides of one coin. So verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Followed by verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. James basically promises that to resist the devil will result in him fleeing. So to resist temptation, to be selfish and self-centered, is to resist the devil's snare to fall into sin. And God promises that to resist selfishness will cause the devil to run away. Literally, he'll leave the field of battle. So there's hope in dealing with sin and temptation. And and interestingly, James says resist. Another sense of don't let go and let God. You can't do that. You've got to resist. That means get up, see the temptation, see the devil, and stand against him. Run away if you have to. Just get out of the room. But resist and fight and stand up. He will leave the field of battle. There's hope. And let's be honest our, our trouble seems to be that often we don't want to resist the devil. Or if we do, we, we do. The truth is we love our sin so much that we actually miss it. So, what will it take us? What will it take for us to take up this offer of extraordinary grace? Well, it seems that James is saying we need the kind of humility that sees our sin as it is before God. Look at the next lot of commands in verse 9 Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's James talking about? Is he saying we have to literally grieve and mourn and wail and really stop having fun? Is that what he's saying? Well, no. James is saying the humble heart sees our sin as God sees it. And as we see that, well, do you know what? We will weep. We will mourn over it. And we'll know the delight and joy of being forgiven. So when we see ourselves as double-minded enemies of God, we will weep over the pain that we've caused him and seek the humility that is the beginning of extraordinary grace. That's what it means to submit to the Lord and to humble ourselves before him. That's why he finishes these few verses on a reminder of where they began. The humble heart seeking the grace of God. Look at verse 8 and 10 with me. Verse 8 says this, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. These are the positive commands in this passage. James tells his reader to draw near to God and the promise is that God will draw near to us because when we humble ourselves before God and admit our sin and and our feelings and fall at his feet, he will come near to us. He will lift us up. And that's a positive description of what Holiness is. God is not saying, there, there, it'll be all right. He will actually lift us up out of mourning and weeping over our sin and put our feet on a solid rock and trust in him more. It's a positive description of holiness. Holiness is drawing close to God. It's seeing his hand upon us to make us more like Jesus. It's a joy and a privilege and a pleasure and a transformative work of God in our lives. And you might be saying at this point, quite honestly, I've tried to draw near to God. Many times, it's just not worked. But can I encourage you to keep trying? As I've said repeatedly, we never drift into holiness. Holiness is something we have to give our lives to. It's a lifelong process of becoming more like Jesus as he gives us more grace and draws us to himself. That's holiness. And daily as we draw near to God, we will appreciate more of the beauty of God's word and more of the intimacy of prayer and cherish his kingdom, his future glory, the future glory of his kingdom more fully. Is that what we want? If so... There are many practical things that we can do to begin this journey once more. Do you know, possibly the biggest thing that you can do is to stop being scared that you might fail to draw near to God. If you feel like a holiness failure, you're in the right place. That's what James says. Keep going. Another thing is expect drawing near to God to take time and energy. Expect it to hurt, as the things you actually like doing with your time and energy and money will need to be pushed out of the way in order to make room. Also on that point, expect to invest both time and money in drawing near to God. And expect the more you invest, the more you return Oh, the, the more return on your investment you will see. Buy decent books. Spend good money on great books. You will never, ever regret it. Expect it to take discipline as well. Expect it to need others to help. Expect it to take every ounce of your heart and soul, and expect that this time next uh, expect that by this time next year your life will have been impacted massively expect that drawing near to God is something so personal so deep so wonderful so intimate it will touch your soul and deal with your selfishness in ways that you could never imagine expect it and you might be saying well where do I start then where do I sign up well, let me, let me finish on some really practical steps. And I'm going to assume that, that we're all in that place where we actually just don't want to do this, and we know that, and yet we kind of realize we really need to. And act. There's, a current, there's a corner of our heart where God's grace is being poured out, and it's saying, I really do actually really, really want to overcome my unwillingness and want to draw near to God. Well, the first place you start then is with a prayer of rededicating your life to Jesus. That's it, start there. Say to God something like this, Lord God, I'm sorry that I have not loved you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind, and with all my strength. I want you as king of my life, I want to serve you all my days. I want to draw near to you Please change me, as you have changed Christians throughout the centuries. And then can I suggest you're proactive? Be proactive. We draw near to God in committing ourselves to fellowship, to serving, to giving ourselves to God in prayer and reading his word. And if that seems overwhelming, then... Start at first base. Really do that. Start at first base. For example, if you're struggling to concentrate when you pray, set aside 12 minutes tomorrow to pray. Use a structure. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, acts. Supplication is asking for things, by the way. And set a timer on your watch for three minutes for each section. And then talk to God. Use a psalm to adore him if you're struggling to, to, to adore him. Most of the 20 last psalms are great for that. And I know it sounds weird to set a timer, but it might just help you to regain that focus in prayer. And by doing so, to learn how to draw near to God. Baby steps. Get yourself a Bible reading plan. There's thousands of them on Version, the Bible app. Or or just send an email to the office tonight if you'd like us to recommend you something. And commit. Commit to meeting other Christians. Commit to serving other Christians. That will cost. It really will. But just as we're willing to invest in driving lessons to learn how to drive, and swimming lessons to learn how to swim, and a new golf club to do whatever golfers do, doesn't it make sense? to invest in drawing near to God and seeking his outpouring of his God-given grace. Look, there's just a few suggestions. I could go on for hours. But really sit down a Christian friend or your parents tonight and say, well, how do I do this? James says, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise and a challenge, isn't it? But in this passage, there is a challenge for those who would not claim to be Christians. You know, the Bible does make it clear you are enemies of God, but there is still a wonderful hope. You can be purified from everything you've done wrong. God can give you a fresh start if you will come to him, admit your sinfulness, and submit your life to him. And by doing so, you'll find the true way to live life to the full. And find a joy like no other joy. Will you do this tonight? Will you join us as we humble ourselves before the Lord and wait for his hand to lift us up in nearness to him. Well, I imagine that after this examination, we might be feeling a little bit sore. But let's remember the heart behind these verses. Jesus isn't wanting to beat us up. He's wanting to make us better. But in order to do that, he does have to point out our issues and our problems. He has to say we're a selfish bunch of people and we need to radically deal with it. He's shown us our selfishness. He's shown us our broken relationships with others and God and he's shown us the cure for it. To humble ourselves before God. To repent of our sin. And so let's praise him for this invitation. And as he gives us more grace and a superabundant grace, let's remember the promise and the challenge. A challenge to humble ourselves and a promise to fill us. Let's take the time to consider now how we might respond.